are listening to Money on the Left, the official podcast of the Modern Money Network Humanities Division, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. This month, we're joined by Frank Pasquale, professor of law at the Brooklyn Law School and author of The Black Box Society, Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information, as well as New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI, both with Harvard University Press and the latter published just last month. Pasquale is a leading thinker in the law of AI, algorithms, and machine learning, and, as he makes clear in his recent book, a committed advocate for a public money-driven just transition from the current paradigm of equality before the algorithm, as we call it in the episode, to a brighter future replete with ethical, complementary robotics. Our conversation with Pasquale covers these and a number of other exciting and surprising components of his project, including his critique of post-structuralist and post-humanist discourse. There truly is something for everyone in this fabulous conversation. Whether you're interested in the future of robotics, the present of machine learning, the history of money, or the promise of critical theory in our post-COVID world. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Thanks also, and as always, to Alex Williams for producing the episode, Rich Farrell for producing the transcripts, and Megan Sauce for the episode graphics. Frank Pasquale, welcome to Money on the Left. Thanks so much, Billy. It's great to be here. We are so thrilled to have you uh, with us on the show, finally. We've, so we've asked you to, to join us to speak about your new book, New Laws of, of Robotics, which is out now with Harvard University Press. And to get things started, we typically like to ask guests to introduce themselves and say a little bit about their scholarly, intellectual, personal background. Uh, could, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and your training and your research agenda? Sure. And I really like this question. And I mean, I may even go back a little bit further than <laughs> research training. And just to say that, you know, I, I'm someone that grew up in uh, Oklahoma and Arizona. Uh, and part of the reason that I grew up in those areas is because my parents were um, sort of the victims of a lot of the economic upheaval of the 70s and 80s. And so one of the things that when I went to uh, Harvard in uh, 1996, uh, you know, that when I was studying there, graduated then, um, I was really interested in the idea of how do how does economics affect people on their their day to day lives? You know, because I'd seen my you know, growing up, my father being laid off from the steel plant and then working in this very precarious position, you know, in um, uh, delivering pizzas and in convenience stores, and then being a clerk uh, at a Walgreens, you know, and then working up to sort of a position between manager and worker there. And it was sort of like very interesting to me to sort of think, and and something that was just close to my mind was how does work happen? Who is, who gets to work? How do they get to work? What are they paid for it? Those were always concerns of mine and and watching my mother's career as well. Um, moving from being a receptionist at a car rental uh, company to working as an insurance, you know, sort of customer service there. And so as I went through college and grad school and law school, um, these ideas about work were never far to hand. And, uh, I remember reading Foucault, uh, and uh, reading you know, some of the essential work he did on the Panopticon and you know, some of the classic stuff he's always cited for. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's a lot like when my mom was a car reservationist and uh, the managers could be listening to her at all times, but you know, they had no idea when they were being listened to, you know, this techno Panopticon. And it was something that led into some of my later work on you know, reputation and privacy in the book Black Box Society. 
Um, so yeah, that's where it is. And I, I did so. I got a law degree as well. I worked in law for a few years as a clerk for a judge and at a law firm, and saw some of the inside of you know big law. It's often called you know some of the the, the ways that large companies interact with each other and the and the government. And then began teaching, uh, and I, I've been teaching in uh, law for 15 years. I, I love the job. I think it's a great opportunity to both try to deeply understand law, to reform it, to be uh, to have the time to give impartial advice to folks in Congress and in the executive branch. Uh, in that capacity, I now serve in the, in the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics, which you know has been a very interesting journey during this whole controversy over COVID data. Um, and so that sort of is, is where I've sort of come from. And where I've landed, um, and, and along the way, it's just been a wonderful opportunity to, to learn a great deal about um, different intellectual movements uh, like uh, MMT. So I'm I'm just thrilled to be on on the podcast today. Awesome, and you know, I think before we divide, uh, dive into your new book, we want to dig into a little bit to the book, your previous book that you mentioned, the Black Box Society: the Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information. And for those unfamiliar with that work, what is the argumentative thrust of the book? And how did the book intervene in these going debates about the, about automation when it first came out? You know, th- this book, it's also good to get to the roots of this book as well. Because when I was, uh, it was about my fifth or sixth year of teaching in 2008 or so, or 2009, and I wanted to write a book, and I was referred to some editors. And my editor then at Harvard University Press said, hey, or the, the, ed- the editor I was talking with there said, hey, send some ideas my way. And I said, well, I've been doing all this work on search engines and Google. I could write just a big book about search engines and just say, here's the search engine book. And I said, but I've also got you know just some side interest in privacy and finance, and here's where I think they all come together. And the idea I had was that essentially more and more of us, our lives, are an open book um, to large corporations and to governments, but their dealings are more and more shrouded in secrecy, uh, either due to trade secrecy for businesses or to state secrecy for the government. And the idea of the black box society was this metaphor of the black box, and actually the metaphor of the one-way mirror is even better in a way. The, the idea is that like they're sort of watching us from behind a one-way mirror, but we can't see you know, what they're doing with our data. And so I got really interested in that idea about secrecy and information asymmetries in different fields. And the way I divided up the book was between reputation, search, and finance. So reputation is how we are known and how the scores and other data dossiers that are on us that we, we don't know how those are being constructed. Um, search is how we know the world increasingly, including news feeds, Google, YouTube, all these sort of uh, entities. Like, how is that the world being presented to us? We often have no idea how, how the algorithms work or how, what data is being used. And finance was really important to me because I felt like coming, as I started writing the book, that was when the financial crisis was happening. And I just thought it was remarkable that there were these firms that had these massive liabilities that nobody seemed to know about or to be able to estimate. You know, and, and there's very lots of detail in the book about, you know, Goldman and AIG and uh, how financial regulation could allow there to be these systemic structural like black holes where things would be going on where no one would understand them. The concept of derivatives as secret liens, something I draw from Mike Simkovic, that, you know, we should sort of know what debt companies are in and be able to assess that. But instead, often using derivatives, they can hide the degree to which they're indebted and that leads to systemic instability, etc. And so that was where that book went. It was sort of all about information asymmetries and it said if we don't address them we just go become more and more of a black box society and the black box is is two metaphors one is the 
like on a plane, a black box is, is watching everything you're doing. And so we're going to be watched in everything we do by these large firms and corporations uh, and governments. And then the other is the black box where an input goes in and output comes out. But we have no idea how they were transformed. And that happens with credit scoring, happens with lots of other areas in finance where there's like information goes into the system and it's algorithmically transformed and there's an output that gives someone a score or a likelihood of um, uh, being a good credit risk, et cetera, but we don't know how it happened. And I'm reminded of this debate uh, or sort of this, this contrast I drew between Larry Summers, um, who was really into algorithmic lending and saying, you know, the secret to getting more and more financial inclusion is if we have more and more data about people and we can better assess how likely they are to be good credit risks or not, and this system will be more advanced than the current credit scoring system. And Derek Hamilton, um, on the other side, saying, look, these algorithms are so important, they should be public, right? They should be absolutely public and, and a matter of sort of governance as to how the algorithms allocating credit operate. Um, and I think that the, the Black Box book, it pushes us in Derek Hamilton's direction, but it took me a few years even to, until after publication to really bite the bullet and say, yeah, these things really ought to be um, public and a matter of, um, uh, and just like the, we'll, we'll talk further about uh, the monetary system being more public, that the systems by which credit is granted should also be more public in um, their uh, in, in disclosure, and also in terms of people being able to give input. And to give one other, just really, an example that just really struck me as I was researching the book was, after Hurricane Katrina, some in Congress said, let's give people, let's say that if for credit scoring purposes, for those who live within an 80-mile radius of New Orleans or, or what the epicenter was, um, don't allow late payments on bills to affect their credit scoring their credit score. We don't want that to hurt them because it's a natural disaster. Everybody deserves a break. And to that, the credit scoring industry, the credit bureaus were very opposed. You know, they're saying, no, don't ever bother with what we're doing because it's an objective science and, you know, with no room for morals to enter into this, etc. And of course, all that they do is, is entirely uh, informed by moralistic decisions about what's counted, what's not, et cetera, and, and payment history, the rest. And so that's where I see we're going. And as we talk more about new laws of robotics, I'll, I can discuss further where that uh, credit granting, where those authorities went, the directions they've gone toward algorithmic lending and more and more AI-driven and black box systems. Yeah, so maybe let's pick up on that. So let's sh try to shift the conversation to the new laws of robotics uh, and maybe draw out the specific, the specific question of automation, right? That it, the, it seems to me that I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the black box is these has these two dimensions that you've identified, but another dimension is the you know algorithmization, the mm, essentially mm. a kind of automating of these, as you say, moral decisions that are actually about governance and are actually political, but are being privatized and sort of foreclosed uh, from contestation and visibility, right? So it seems like it seems like that's one of the stakes of the of the Black Box Society book. And then you you then take that to another figure of automation and that's the robot or robotics. So maybe we could talk about that connection. And I you know I think it would be helpful to just have you kind of sketch out your sense of the history of robotics and um, why why you turn to that in particular? Great question. Okay. So, you know, the, the one way in thinking about this project and, you know, I, I really appreciate all of these, um, angles on 
you know, where we got, how we got to where we are today in terms of, and, and, and dealing with this project on the robotics is, if you go back to what Aaron Beninov calls the automation discourse of the early 2010s, and these are books like Martin Ford's Rise of the Robots or um, uh, Brynjolfsson and McAfee, Race Against the Machine. Um, there's a book called Humans Need Not Apply. Um, Future of the Professions is another one. There's this whole cascade of books that came out. And you know, Farhad Manju actually has this article in Slate, this five-part series that like, lawyers, guess what? AI is going to take your job. Pharmacists, Bye-bye, you know, no more job for you, etc. And this was a really popular sort of idea in the early 2010s was that the automation and um, uh, robotics and AI were moving beyond the factory floor to take over all manner of professional and human services jobs. And the idea of the self-driving car, I think, was at the very vanguard of that. The sense that, like, oh, forget it, you know, that's that's all over. And by you know, 2020, certainly, we'll all be in self-driving cars. That just seems a very easy computational problem to solve. And I think that one of the things that I noticed in the counter discourse to that, so there's an automation discourse that's broadly neoliberal. There's a counter discourse that I would call like the fully automated luxury communism, maybe school that would say, well, maybe we should automate the automators too, or like make the managers robots, <laughs> or it's like tell the managers like you're not that special either. We could actually co compute your role as well. And I felt like part of I I couldn't really go in that direction because I felt like first of all, one of the main reasons why automation and um, uh, robotization was going poorly in so many areas was that the value judgments were not being acknowledged and that also shadow work was being forced onto people. You know, and, and you, one easy example of that is with physicians where they are, uh, they were required to uh, do electronic health records and to gather far more data about their, what they're doing. And that should lead to a better healthcare system overall. But they were not really being compensated for that. So there's a lot of burnout among physicians. There's a lot of like extra work being created, but it was just being shoved onto people. And I, I recently read this wonderful article by Leslie Wilcox saying that, you know, in fact, we shouldn't be worried about there'll be no work for humans to do. In fact, there's sort of an exponential generation of work by uh, data and by the increasing amounts of data that we have and the more information we have about the world, et cetera. And so I think that that's where I was concerned that the automation discourse was being met by a sort of left uh, and, and a somewhat more progressive and hopeful discourse of like the fully automated luxury communism. I guess Aaron Bastani recently published on that. Um, but I wanted to find something that would be take the best out of both of those traditions, but that would emphasize the importance of governance and the importance of governance beyond the sphere of even government itself. To say that there are professions, and we can get into professions later on if you'd like, uh, that would that essentially were their, their purpose was to delegate power over working conditions and over a craft and over a service to people on the front lines. So, for example, you know, a teachers' union, um, rather than saying to teachers, just being able to say to all the teachers, look, you know, next year you're going to use Proctorio uh, software so that you know you can watch. Right? I, uh, you can watch your students, you know, when they're taking exams. Or there might be another software system, like there's a one that I describe in the book called Hikvision from China that takes a picture of every student's face every second and sort of analyzes it for its expression, its attentiveness, say. And the ideal to me is that the teachers' union can uh, push back against that, both because it doesn't want all that surveillance, right? I wouldn't want to be a teacher in a classroom because it can take my face too. Um, and also because ideally it's acting on behalf of uh, those that it's serving, 
right? And ideally, I think that like professions and unions will be uniting over time, over the next several decades, with the idea that the reason why it's important to have labor have an important governance role over corporations and over its terms of uh, work is because you want to have that governance function by people who are in the front lines who can speak up on behalf of their clients, their clients, their students, the people they work for, etc. That's the vision. I, I and, it, and it may be as seen as too idealistic a vision, but that's the vision that sort of is driving me. So I think that that's, I, I know it's a wide ranging answer, but I think that part of where I think that we could, we should stop even the ideal of robotization um, because there's plenty of work out there saying the robots don't work very well, you know, and that's, that's good work too. And I cite it, but in some areas, I don't even think it should be an ideal. I don't think that we should have an ideal of the robot because there are so many important ways in which the communication of the fundamental data about how well something is being done is something that can only be done human to human by a human being with certain human abilities, you know, uh, and, and to a human who can um, conversationally, open-endedly um, engage with the people with, with whom they're dealing, right? And I, and I think about that a lot from the, my perspective as just being an educator. You know, I just think of the many, so many ways in which my students have taught me or thinking of like conferences I've held where we've had like recent law school graduates or, you know, uh, or people in law school that raise really interesting questions or even just my own experience as being a student and sometimes asking questions that like people thought were really weird, but then like later on, you know, they're, they're accepted, you know, or sort of they're like, oh, okay, you know. So I think this is something that it is, is really helpful in terms of like shaking up the discourse that like we all have, that we're all on this track toward automation and AI just watching us and then reproducing what we do in uh, in response to the stimulus that they've also watched us respond to. Just to follow up quickly, um, I'm you know I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the history of um, robotics and you know our our kind of cultural imagination around robotics and ha how has that changed over the course of modernity. Um, but I'm also curious, and this is, I mean, I'm asking you two gigantic questions, I realize, so, you know, take it, take it as you will. Um, but I'm also wondering about a little sketch of the, the history of professions and expertise and what neoliberalism has, has done to that, uh, especially in this moment of um, the Trump Republican Party and a kind of, you know, right-wing backlash against expertise. I'm curious if you just have thoughts about the history of the professions and expertise in, in that sense? Well, let me give one really uh, concrete and compressed response um, about an example that I think implicates both of your questions. And then I'll, I'll try to expand out from that to, to the, um, the history uh, with respect to professions and robots. I think that one of, if you watch the Chicago School um, uh, in terms of law and economics, one of the big pushes, I think, in the Chicago School, uh, if we're going to write sort of really broad, um, high-level intellectual history of the mid-20th century to late-20th century U.S., is a push by those in economics and law at Chicago and then their sort of out fellow travelers in, in many other fields to displace bureaucrats and politicians and lawyers with quantitative experts. So that can be done in many ways, right? You can say, look, when we decide a tort case, we're not trying to decide the morals of the situation and whether someone did something morally wrong or morally right. 
all we're trying to decide is what are the optimal incentives to try to avoid, uh, you know, the, a, a harm that is preventable or something like that, you know, along those lines. It's like there are, there are equations. And, you know, with enough data, we can fill out these equations and we'll know which way to go. And, I mean, the genius of Richard Posner as one of the leaders of this field was to say, really, you could retrofit our model to the past of tort cases and anything that doesn't fit our model, well, that's bad tort law. And in the future, we're going to apply these models, and that's really the way we decide torts. And that, and I, and he even has a, a collection of essays called "Overcoming Law." The idea is that you know, law you can sort of leave in the past as this kind of antiquated, humanities-oriented pro, uh, uh, profession, and that the quantitative and the data-driven will be the the the, the saviors of uh, systems of order. That they will ultimately provide order. That they'll ultimately do things that law promises much better than law can. Now, more recently, there's been a push at Chicago. And of course, all the infirmities of that came to a head or came to sudden exposure in the financial crisis, right? So many ways in which, and even Posner himself wrote a book after called, I think, A Failure of Capitalism or something, you know, where he, he was sort of saying, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Of course, once you try to actually reform mm -hmm. capitalism well, then he becomes the concern troll. It's like, oh, well, I'm really sorry about capitalism, but what, what you're trying to do it would be far worse, right? But, but anyway, even there's this sort of, there's this, this kind of pushing back or this kind of like apologeticness you know, or just stepping back. But what's come up in its stead is, so they used to be sort of besotted with the economists. Now the economists are a bit um, discredited. Uh, so now what's coming up in its stead is AI. Okay, AI is going to do it. And so one paper, uh, at a, one of the co-authors is from Chicago, one paper is like on micro-directives, okay, it's saying we have this debate in law over rules versus standards. The rule is like very clear, uh, and general applicability, and then the standard would be, well, both are trying to be general, generally applicable, but the rule is clear, the standard is more flexible. What do we do? Well, fortunately, now that we have AI, we could personalize law to everybody. So rather than just having a rule that says 55 miles an hour on the freeway, we look at Frank, you know, and he's a relatively new driver. He doesn't drive very much. He's from New York. He rides the subway. And we say he can only go 40. Okay. But we look at, you know, others and we'll say, hey, you know, Scott, you, you go up to 75. You were a fantastic, great driver, right? And, and of course, and that sounds silly, but then they say, well, well, imagine if we only had, you know, a million variables about everybody. If we knew Frank's health record and we knew what he'd had for dinner and we knew what it did. So there's this idea of like personalized law and it's been tried in many different areas. One person there has proposed that, for example, I think this was Lyris Hewlett's in terms of big data attributions to people that, you know, if someone dies without a will, but they are of a certain number of demographic groups and we have wills from those demographic groups, we could kind of attribute those person's preferences onto that person, right? And so there's this idea that you could sort of make a law, make the law a, a bit of a machine that goes of itself. And I think that's behind some research and computational law as well. And so in watching that, in watching sort of this my general suspicion has been, and if I, and, and you know, this is a real stretch, but you know, I think that what Murawski has done for a lot of social science and law, I try to be the sort of like guardian or like watchdog at the gate, you know, in terms of like looking at things that are brought in that are supposedly making our field better, more determinate, more scientific, and I just say, you know, bark at it, you know, and say, wait, you know, I don't think it is, and I think that that's with my that was my impression with the AI there because the dialogue to get into your question on the professions. The professions have been under attack for a long time, right? I mean, and I think that just to do the recent intellectual history, like the left, a lot of people on the left justifiably said, look at these professions. They're really, they're these um, uh, 
privileged members of the community who look down on patients, you know, doctors looking down on patients, lawyers looking down on clients, etc. We need to, you know, level the playing field. And that was behind a lot of the, the um, uh, Ralph Nader stuff as well, in terms of like Ralph Nader trying to, you know, be such a consumer activist and co- privileging consumerism over producerism. Um, but you also had simultaneously people on the right saying, ah, these professions, they're trying to order labor beyond the market or outside the market. And that's really suspicious. And so when you have both those things come together, you see this coming together right now, like with, for example, attacks on occupational licensing, right? Both sides come together, the left to say, the, I mean, not the left, but I say it's more there, it's more liberal, you know, it's more of a liberal critique. Uh, and then with, with the, there's more right attacking occupational licensing. And there's some that's certainly unnecessary, but we got to realize if you get rid of occupational licensing, the whole reason it arose was, or one main major reason it arose was because union density went down so low that people needed to fight back in some way to maintain wages and living standards. And one way of doing that was to say, well, we're going to be occupationally licensed. But another purpose of it is to actually bring in people that are qualified and that know what they're doing and that can be part of an ongoing labor organization that decides what standards are in the field, that helps form. And this is about deepening democracy, right? Deepening the democratization, not just it's like an election every two or four years, but it's also about democratizing your workplace and how what the terms are under which you work. And so that's where I think is the is coming together in my book. And in the first chapter, I have these sort of sections on crises of expertise that are happening presently, and how it really is time, I think, to rally behind a new concept of expertise, rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, it's all going to, we're all going to be citizen journalists, or it's all going to, all the information is going to be democratized. That's not really true. People don't have the time to do that themselves. We're going to always be trusting experts and professionals for some things. And then the question becomes, how do you make those experts and professions um, more amenable to and more open to uh, democratic dialogue, more responsible and accountable to the people that they serve? Those are deep questions. But I wouldn't sort of get rid of experts. And so to make, put a, to really answer your question, the problem that I've been dealing with is I think all too often um, there are these folks I call meta-experts, especially economists and engineers, who think they are experts about how other experts should run their lives. And so, and, be, and because I see the meta-experts in the eco- economics and engineering field turning from quantitative analysis to AI and robotics as things that will replace the other professionals, the other experts, I wanted to develop a counter-narrative and to say, actually, your meta-expertise does not support um, the substitution of AI and robotics for many members of unions, many members of professions, many of the services fields that I talk about in the book. My friends, this record comes to you through the Sales Talk Transcription Company, Incorporated. Your speaker, the mechanical salesman. May I take the pleasure of introducing Mr. J. Willicombe Billows, the inventor of the Billows feeding machine, a practical device which automatically feeds your men while at work. Don't stop for lunch. Be ahead of your competitor. The Billows feeding machine will eliminate the lunch hour, increase your production, and decrease your overhead. Allow us to point out some of the features of this wonderful machine. Its beautiful aerodynamic streamlined body, its smoothness of action made silent by our electroporous metal ball bearings. Let us acquaint you with our automaton soup plate. It's compressed air blower. No breath necessary. No energy required to cool the soup. More de- democracy at work. That's that's a lot less sexy than uh, the techno utopian and techno dystopian <laughs> narratives <laughs> that are that are so attractive. I think for that reason. I think, um, yeah, no, that's 
that's really helpful there. Um, wanted to, to go back to the maybe the beginning of your book where you start with a couple of very evocative epigraphs, one from Hannah Arendt pertaining to education, and then another from uh, Lawrence Joseph concerning the re- relationship between law and phenomenology. So can you help us kind of stitch together these and unpack these quotations and how they, they frame your book? Yes, and actually let me just get my copy of the <laughs> the quotation. So I'm, I, I, if I need to quote them, I will quote them precisely sure. because I think particularly poets are very concerned about being quote, quoted precisely, which <laughs> more power to them. They, they spend, you know, uh, they spend hours and hours trying to find the exact right words. And so I've got to do that. So I'll start with Arendt because I think uh, the, Arendt, the Hannah Arendt uh, uh, epigraph is really the most accessible way of thinking about what I'm trying to do with the book. And just to read a little bit from it, um, she says that, quote, education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. And education, too, is where we decide whether we love our children enough not to expel them from our world and leave them to their own devices, nor to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. And I love this quote because I feel like there's something about it that is both, it's acknowledging the importance of institutions, of the past, of knowing about your past, and of tradition, while also saying that we're always going to be tempted to just force a children, to force the young into what we've always known. And that delicate balance between trying to recognize and value the old versus trying to find what's, you know, what, what, kind of play in the joints and freedom we need in the new is, is critical to me. And what's interesting is, you know, that latter point about trying to ensure freedom for upcoming generations. Um, a lot, I mean, I guess I should go in two ways with this. The Both sides of the quote, I think, counsel in favor of regulating robotics and AI, because the first part is easy, right? Value tradition. So if the, the fact that we've had humans be teachers and humans be uh, doctors and humans take on all of these certain roles for so long, that that does count in favor of that in some ways, and we should understand why that we've done that for so long. That's part of it. That's that sort of tradition-respecting aspect of it. But the element of freedom is also something that we need to really be sure we have as part of the automation discussion, because so much of what happens with surveillance now and with the ability of robotics and AI to watch our every move, so much of that is in the name of creating this better future, in fact, locking us into the past, Right. It's sort of, for example, imagine a company that just decides we're going to hire people who sound and talk and write like the people we talked to, we hired in the past. Okay. There's already companies doing that. There's companies that are, that are selling these algorithms to firms saying, oh, you've got a thousand applicants for 20 positions. No problem. Have each one of them record an interview on our uh, video screen and write up a hundred word document. And we'll just do this massive pattern recognition exercise, you know? And um, that I think is awful. It's awful. And it's a way of freezing people into the past, right? It's a way of sort of saying, well, we had this group of people that did well in the firm and now that data is going to be the template for everybody else. Um, so I think that's those both sides of Aaron's quote, counsel in favor of um, regulation and democratic control of technology. The Larry Joseph one is difficult. Like, it's a very... And his poems are often difficult. Um, I mean, I think, he, I think he is a brilliant poet. He was writing about money and finance and debentures in the 1980s. I mean, he was like a poet and a lawyer at Sherman and Sterling. Um, and then he put the two together at, uh, as, as a law professor. And His collected works were just uh, published this year and, uh, you know, got 
pretty good reviews in like the LRB, New York Times, New York Review of Books, I believe. Like just he's a, he's a very well recognized poet. And one of the things he know he says in this sort of poem uh, called In Parentheses is he he says toward the end of one section, quote, the analog is what I believe in. The reconstruction of the phenomenology of perception, not according to a machine, more now for the imagination to affix to than ever before. And I love this ending because, I mean, a lot of the rest of the poem is about the horror of mechanized war. And that certainly you know, makes a lot of sense in terms of what I've been talking about and what I talk about in the military chapter of the book. But this ending where he says the analog is what I believe in, it's so interesting to say that in the midst of digitization. Right. And to say, and, and it really is a metaphysical point. It's an ontological point. It's a point that sort of is about the importance of the integrity of the human as a sensing agent. Because a lot of what robotics is, it's you put together sensors, information processors, and an actuator. And if you believe in the idea that we are just algorithmic selves, that we're just transducers of forms, that our brains are just transducing one electrical signal into another, you know, you could ultimately binarize everything, right? You could sort of turn everything, you could, you could reproduce people as machines, as Ray Kurzweil has, has hoped for in forms of a singularity. And part of what I think is, is brilliant and, and beautiful in this expression, um, the reconstruction of the phenomenology of perception not according to machine, is that it's warning us, don't think about machines as the model of human cognition or something we should aspire to, right? Every age the dominant new technology becomes its model of cognition to which it tries to get everyone to aspire to, right? And in ours, it's the brain as computer. It's like, well, you know, the brain is like before, you know, there were other examples in past epics. And I think in um, uh, Jeanette Winterson's book, Frank Histine, um, she, she reflects on this. She, she sort of tells the story of uh, uh, the um, uh, Frankenstein, the writing of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And she contrasts it with this uh, transhumanist convention that's happening, I believe, in Arizona and like the you know the present time. And a lot of what she writes about in that is to say, you know, the the she she talks about the ways in which people are trapped by their current conception of technology as thinking of what the mind is and should become. And what Joseph does in the poem is he says, nope. I actually think, I don't think digitization is where we're all going and where it's all heading. I think, in fact, that the phenomenology is important and contrasting that with behaviorism. And I think that, you know, to understand his poem, the key is to see in each of these key words has a shadow side. So when he says the analog is what I believe, believe in, he's critiquing the infirmities of the digital. When he says, talks about reconstructing phenomenology of perception, he's contrasting that with behaviorism, right? And so much of the book is a critique of efforts to model the mind behavioristically the mind our mind is a black box um and how we get beyond that and how we we move from the idea that all the world is just a series of stimulus and responses to time and space and effort to process conversationally and non-algorithmically um ways of, of dealing with the world and I'll say one last thing about this is because I, I mean I'm currently writing this project that's on algorithmic accountability and law and one of the commenters on the paper said to me, isn't all thought algorithmic? Isn't everything algorithmic? I mean, how are you just saying that you want irrationalism and not thinking? And I'm like, well, no, you know, that's not, that's not what I want, you know, but it's easy to think that all thought should be algorithmic. If you're not familiar with humanities, if you're not familiar with humanistic <laughs> modes of thought, if you don't think of like fiction as a structured experience of the imagination, as James Boyd White puts it, but instead as just a lark, you know, we're just having fun in fiction. We're not, you know, there's nothing really good there. And that last one I think is so important because I note that sometimes there are commenters that say, 
oh, you know, education does nothing for people. It's just signaling. It's just, it's just you know, an added, added hurdle for uh, labor market credentialing, et cetera. No. No, and these are often people in universities say this. And I say, well, then give up your post to someone that believes in the educational mission. Like, education is actually like, really important, and the humanities are important. And, like, these are ways of knowing they're not just effective, um, mangled, folded, spindled, mutilated forms of algorithmic thought, you know, or just, just searching for that. They're entirely distinct, valuable forms of thought that need to be at the core of policymaking. You know, we need to have a co president's counselors of social science advisors, uh, humanistic advisors, um, other forms of advisors to complement the Council of Economic Advisors. And we need to simultaneously be working on making economics itself more reflective on its narrative foundations, not in the way that, you know, Bob Schiller is doing by saying, oh, people are sometimes irrational and they tell stories about the economy, you know, isn't that interesting? You know, not that, but instead, you know, like what, what Deirdre McCloskey, others, you know, have been talking about and, and what, you know, Jens Beckert um, uh, and uh, I, I cite Beckert's Uncertain Futures in the book, what they're talking about in terms of like, you know, imagining futures that are better or um, uh, uh, social science fictions or um, Will Davies uh, edited a volume called Economic Science Fictions. Those are wonderful, right? They, they, are, they are forms of a scenario analysis and ways of richly describing better futures that are just as important, if not more important, than quantitative models of the economy. So, sorry, that was a long response to the, on the epigraphs, but I think that they, they are, I'm so glad you asked about them because they're so evocative to me. I mean, that's why, and it, it, it's, I never feel like a book project is over until I have the right epigraph or epigraphs. And when I, I found, the, I had the Joseph one in mind for a long time, but when I found the Arant one, I thought, yeah, this is it. So, thanks. So, would it be fair to, to sort of maybe um, inartfully summarize the Larry Joseph bit as a, a kind of a rejection of the meta expertise discourse that you're... Um, engaging with yes yes yeah. because the meta expert comes in and says um and by the way i should just to be for full disclosure meta expertise is not in this book uh but it's actually something i'm working on now for the oxford handbook on expertise so i'm trying to you know doing this uh, with a so sociologist of expertise is, is running the, that project and so uh and it's it's funny this this idea of experts on experts is so interesting in the academy and you can think of sts as that field science and technology studies but it's a really interesting area. It can go in all sorts of bad directions, you know, as Bruno Latour has met, has noticed recently with the climate change denial and other things. But yes, to come back to your, your fundamental question, absolutely, that that is the, the, the argument, is that you're not going to be, be able to come in as a meta-expert and just put a million cameras in a hospital and watch everything that the uh, surgeon does and replace that person. Or... You know, something that's now being tried even more and more is with therapy. You know, you're not going to be able to say, say have a recording of every therapy session and then have a recording, a, a potential response to every complaint, every uh, idea um, in uh, that is that is automated. However, and this is another really important point of the book, you should expect the people that can make money off of the meta expertise involved in AI and artificial uh, AI and robotics to continually push for a reconceptualization of every field as a field that fits their model of reality. So, for example, if you believe in cognitive behavioral therapy, that makes psychology and psychiatry much easier, or, or any sort of counseling service, it makes it much easier to automate that. Similarly with law, if you get rid of all appeals, if you get rid of all of narrative explanation in law, much easier to just have like everything be like a red light camera. You either you're under the, under the light when it was red, or you're not. Okay, and and that is something that you know sometimes 
That can be a good thing. I was happy to see in the U.S. that we moved from a first-to-invent to a first-to-file standard for patenting because it, that led to lots of the old standard led to lots of litigation over who was first to invent. But there's so many areas of law where people that are behind AI in law and, and legal tech want to reconceptualize law and rewrite law as something that gets rid of human discretion and human conversation and is just something that can be automated. And I think that there, it's, there's value in the field as it stands with respect to its openness to uh, forms of uh, conversation, disputation, uh, interpre- interpretation. Uh, yeah. Equality before the algorithm doesn't, doesn't have the same ring. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yes, I mean, and it is. It, it's interesting though because I mean it, that equality before the algorithm, I think, is behind a lot of legal reform. Um, a lot of people and a lot of legal reform that's had unexpectedly bad consequences. You know, and so that's like, for example, sentencing guidelines. You might have the you might say, well, thank goodness, now we've got these sentencing guidelines, so we won't have uh, racial disparities in sentencing. But then, what about what if the racial disparities just move to whom we arrest, right? And what if the sentencing guidelines become really harsh? Then the algorithmization of sentencing from something that would involve some level of, of judgment and uh, you know narrative description of, of why the person deserved a certain sentence. Um, it doesn't. It may get rid of a narrow form of bias while reinforcing the legitimacy of a fundamental, or reinforcing the strength and power of a fundamentally illegitimate system. So, speaking of uh, like telling stories and perhaps to hone in a little bit on this humanistic mode of thinking as, as a sort of rhetorical crux here, that the title and hook of your book takes us back to science fiction writer Isaac Asimov and his 1942 short story Runaround. The story includes a reference to a fictional handbook of robotics, 56th edition from the year 2058. And in that handbook, we discover three basic laws for ensuring an ethical practice of robotics. Can you briefly enumerate these laws and then tell us why you felt compelled in your work to develop four new laws of robotics for our contemporary moment? Great. Thanks, Max. And I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good way to, to really set up the transition and sort of the hook of the book. Because I, I mean, the, writing a book like this, it's funny because, you know, in thinking about it midway through, after getting reviews of it, you know, at least one of the reviewers was saying, this book is about a lot more than robotics. And it's like, <laughs> you should really change the title. And I, and it's true, it really is. But I mean, I, I think and the subtitle does a little bit of the, of the work there. But it is... Um, I think it was critical because I've just seen these laws of robotics from Asimov in so many places. And I see also the way in which a very well-told science fiction tale can really grab people's interests, especially technologists, because a lot of technologists just are taking engineering, math, science courses. They're not, you know, they, they need to have, they want something relatively they can grasp onto and just hold on as almost algorithmic in itself. And so I thought to myself, well, Asimov was so successful with these three laws that why don't I try to just devise like a few laws that, you know, reflect wide-standing um, consensus, I think, among ethicists about where uh, uh, robotics should be going in certain respects, and also that are that put in my own political economy spin to them. So, to start with uh, Asimov, the three laws of robotics in the 1942 story are, first, a robot shall not uh, harm a human being, or shall not, shall not injure a human being. I think the, the word injure is very interesting because it's Reminds me of the ways in which um, standing uh, to sue gets narrowed. So if you say injury as opposed to all these other ways in which the world could be harmed by robotics and AI, that's uh, an injury to a human being, one particular human being. Yeah. It's a narrowing. So you've got, it cannot injure a human being. Second is that a robot must obey per, a human's commands. 
except when that conflicts with the first law. So if I told someone, you know, use that ro- uh, told a robot to go kill somebody, it shouldn't obey me. And the third is that a robot shall protect itself unless that violates the first two commands. And I think these have resonance with lots of folks in technology because of the sort of elegant recursion, right? You have like, they're, they're sort of nested. <laughs> You've got this fundamental directive and then a secondary directive and then a tertiary directive, et cetera. Um, but the problem is that like, they're really vague, right? I mean, what if two people come out of a robot and they both tell them conflicting things to do? And what, what do you do then? Um, you know, there's all sorts of other issues there that there are, are, are arise from them, which he realized. They became sort of the foundation of this, uh, of his science fiction, uh, these sort of conflicts. I think that I felt like there needed to be new laws because, first, because of those ambiguities, and also because there's not much of a political economy or institutional analysis behind this, right? I mean, it's just sort of, well, there's laws and they'll be programmed in, but like, who's doing the programming and who's doing the enforcement of that? And how are we going to durably and equitably distribute power over AI and robotics? Those sort of questions, you know, coming out of a tradition like David Noble, um, you know, wrote, wrote about an, uh, the role of machinery and, you know, workers' governance or lack of governance over machinery, those were really motivating me. And so what I found is, I mean, I articulated these new laws, and the first new law is that robotics should, robotics and AI should complement professionals, not replace them. And there I tried to divide, to develop a line between the type of labor that we just want robots to substitute for versus situations where we think that robots and AI could make existing labor more valuable. And I realized that the professions line will be controversial, but I was inspired there by a 1964 article by Harold Wilensky, which was called The Professionalization of Everyone? Question mark. And I think ultimately, the labor and work that will be uh, remaining, and there'll be lots of it, as AI and tech- robotics advances, will be seen as professional work, will be treated in that way. The type of prerogatives, the type of job security, the type of education, the type of responsibility that you see professionals now having in uh, their fields will be that of, of ideally, in my view, um, the work that endures over time. The second new law of robotics is something that gets a little more cultural and metaphysical, and that is to say that robots should not counterfeit humanity, that robots and AI should not counterfeit humanity. And my idea there is that we all deserve to know if we're dealing with a robot or an AI or not. Okay, So if I see uh, an, a, a bot on Twitter that has an AVI that's been constructed, we now have AI that can just construct fake faces, and it has one of those fake faces, and it has a name underneath it, and it says, hey, you know, check it out. Um, I should know that, that was a, that's actually a bot. That whoever put that up, uh, I should know that that's the, a bot. And secondly, my fourth new law of robotics says that any entity out there that is uh, a machine or AI put out by someone, that should be attributed back to the person who created or controlled it, who created it and who controls it. So we need to know those two things. So the second and fourth new laws of robotics fit together in that way in that we need to know what's an AI or a robot, and we need to be able to know who owns or controls it. And my third new law is to say that robotics and AI should not contribute to zero-sum arms races. And the clearest example of that is in the military, that we really need to stop the development of AI of uh, killer robots. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's beginning the sort of, like, use of AI and robotics for, like, ex- immense destructive capacity. Um, both in militaries and in policing, and I feel like we need to stand that down. The part of the legitimacy of violence is that the human beings who inflict it take on some role or some danger themselves. Um, and if they don't do that, and that for, for example, I mean, that's why the when you see President Trump putting like giant walls around the White House, you know, that's not that I think that, you know, there's <laughs> not calling for any sort of violence there, but I am saying that like it's bizarre to have people sort of putting up 
such massive walls between themselves and others where they just sort of can be uh, and, and can have a remote control war. And I think that that, that leads to things like um, uh, robotics and AI that are um, uh, that once one side has them, the other side feels like they have to invest in them. And as the other side invests, then the side that you know started the thing feels like they have to invest more. And that's problematic. And just to gloss that final new law of robotics a little bit more, I think that needs to extend in a political economic sense to all sorts of arms races, right? And so in all sorts of arms races, uh, where, for example, you might see an AI develop that can file a thousand lawsuits at once. We already have a gig economy platform for evicting people, okay? Um, where people are trying to draw in people to, to accelerate evictions. Imagine that there's, a, there's another firm that sort of automated paperwork to evict people or to, to sue tenants. Imagine we have AI for that. Well, some people would say, well, the answer to that is to develop a tenant bot that can immediately process the letter from the landlord and write back a return letter. Okay. And then, and you can see how that, how fast that could turn into an arms race where you have sort of like, um, and there's actually in one of the more convincing parts of, of, of a pretty terrible movie called Jupiter Rising, um, there's a, there's a vision of this as the future of the legal system. Essentially, it's just robots just spitting out papers at one another, you know, and, and I think that's, that's problematic. And you see that in finance with high frequency trading, like one firm says, oh, my bots need to go faster than the other's bots. So I'm going to dig a tunnel under the Allegheny Mountains between New York and Chicago so that I can be 30 milliseconds faster than the other side. No, no, this is something like a, a reasonable regulatory regime would just say, look, if you both come in at the same millisecond or at the same microsecond, whatever the you know hundredth or thousandth of a second is, then there's another way of allocating it. We don't just sort of give it to the entity that's fastest, right? And so those are the, and I think the reason why these new laws I think are really important is because they are drenched in political economic judgments about what's productive and what's not, what type of labor should be made more valuable by technology and what type of labor should be sort of replaced by technology, and what are the institutions that can make the hard decisions about the dividing line, right? I mean, one, one, divide, one hard thing brought up by the laws would be, should imagine that we have people investing in robot hotels. And I've heard that in Japan, there has to be at least one person a human person at a hotel. I'm not certain of this law, but it was in a in an article on a robot hotel called Hotel Hena. Okay, so at Hotel Hena, they would have a robot who checks you in, a robot who would bring your bags to your room, uh, a robot who cleans all of the uh, um, rooms, etc. Right, and we face difficult decisions as a society. First of all, do we maintain the rule that there has to be at least one person? Do we see that maybe there have to be two or three people, you know, so that one person isn't so overwhelmed? Uh, it reminds me of, like, the staffing standards for hospitals under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. There are certain staffing standards of what a hospital has to have in an emergency room and, and who, how they staff it, etc. Do we do that for uh, hotels or not? Um, what are our reasons for doing so? Do we think that, like, hotel management schools and other things like that are really valuable and are producing valuable research that should, in turn, be part of a human profession of hospitality? Or do we think, you know, in the end, this is all going to the direction of the ubic, you know, the Philip K. Dick story where you have to just put a credit card in to get into any door in the society, right? There's no people behind the doors. It's just you, you just have that. Or an altered carbon, another science fiction novel where you have that sort of vision, right? And I, I don't have an answer there. Like, I don't really think, and I think it's, it's each society should be able to answer it differently. Maybe some societies will be like, we're going all out for the robots, you know, and our next generation AI development plan is just all out robotize the the hotel sector another society may say look we have unions at hotels 
they're good paying work. Um, there are people who are um, uh, concierges, people that have local knowledge, um, that want to uh, give more advice to people that are coming into the hotel. Um, there are ways of arranging conferences and other events at hotels that require human judgment and expertise. Um, you can go in that direction too. But what I'm trying to do with the book is to sort of set up a framework where that's the conversation we have rather than the conversation of um, how do we take every person in the hotel and uh, uh, have surveillance record everything they do and record every stimulus that, that caused everything that they do and then uh, transplant that, plop that into a machine that can be them, right? And, and I think that the first conversation I hope is a more interesting one about the structure of the future of labor and the structure of, of um, uh, ensuring worker governance and contributions to um, the ongoing operation of certain facilities or certain uh, in, in other areas and then i think the other and and that's where i hope that is is what the book is pushing for um i think it's a much easier case in like health and education and that's why i have whole chapters on health and education i think it's really an easy case to be made that like these are professions like and that you really rather than having you know apps teach your fourth grader you want to have a teacher there who's going to exemplify certain ways of being in the world but who also is going to give you good advice on like what's a good app and what's a bad app and that'll be a bigger part of teachers' role. Teachers, doctors, others, they're going to have to take on more and more of a responsibility for saying, hey, these are good apps that will really help your children or help the sick those who are sick. And these are bad apps, like don't trust them um, or they're problematic and not effective. So, yeah. And because the unions, they'll, they'll have better pay. Uh, yes. yes. Health and education are two sectors in Louisiana. That they're the only ones that the state can cut the budget of in times of austerity. So there's a concerning alignment there in terms of your point uh billy about the health and education sector in, in louisiana and that being cut in austerity i think that that's really critical because um there's this whole discourse about the cost disease and economists saying if only health and education could be more like manufacturing you know if only we could make it more and more like manufacturing we could make it faster and faster and and, uh, and cheaper and cheaper etc and my worry is that you know that is that's billed as a way of helping consumers and patients and, and students getting everything cheaper. But to me, the answer is have the state pay for it, have the state have the funds to pay for these things, um, and uh, recognize that these are quintessentially human roles that are going to need humans um, for the futurity, for indefinitely. So. into that question of of state state paying for it and 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 money and some of your discussion of uh modern monetary theory in the book but um i wanted to bring up something along the way which is a a, a slightly different question 
Uh, I came up in you know the high heady moment of '90s uh, theory and you know, post-structuralism and all of its <laughs> varieties. And um, you know, I think one of the deep lessons of post-structuralism and related discourses is that uh, mediation, signification, mm. uh, technology are. Uh, you know, they're not somehow just inert external tools, but they are constitutive of human relationality. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I still hold by that um, by that thesis. But there's there's another element in post-structuralism uh, that that takes shape in different forms and different writers and different discourses. But there is there is a, a kind of automaticity that is often ascribe to the functioning of signification or techne that that is kind of um bigger than the human that is out of our control and that you know we need to um in order to have an ethical relation to technology and the world we need to somehow be open to you know the the play of difference right in one version of it um it be open to that that uncontrollable automaticity and you know i have problems with that reading now and i think i i'm sensing that you do too yeah. <laughs> and i'm wondering you know i think from a certain point of view your your laws of robotics you know, really just fly in the face of this kind of thinking right but i i don't think that that you're doing so in some kind of untutored naive or certainly like luddite kind of way and i'm i'm curious how much you thought about what you're doing in relationship to that does that framing make some sense to you has that been something you've wrestled with yeah i mean there are definitely there's ways in which when i think about a lot of post-humanist discourse and you know i am not in dialogue with that as much as i wanted to be in this book because the book is a trade book so i couldn't really get into the uh, the details of post-humanist discourse, but certainly post-humanist discourse builds on a lot of the post-structuralism that you're discussing and uh, accelerationism as well as a watchword there. Um, and I think the idea there is that um, it's, it's appealing because we want to be able to understand how social forces, how technology, how um, various aspects of our economic, social, and natural environment affect people. And part of, I think, emancipation on a critical theory account of emancipation would be being able to lift yourself above your current circumstances and say, wow, I have been conditioned to think in all these various different ways, right? And I think the problem comes in when people say, well, you know, even your effort toward reflection is itself conditioned, Right, and I mean, I think that was sort of the the um, uh, the how can I? It's dead end that maybe dialectic of enlightenment was going toward, Mm -hmm. but that you know just seems to be continually (laughs) uh, um, done afresh. And I mean, it was part of my. And by the way, I think of the the most recent. There's been some wonderful recent um, incarnations of the the critical theory tradition. Um, Bernard Harcourt's um, critique and praxis is a really good example where. He's really struggling with this idea. I mean, and he's just a brilliant theorist who can re, who's just read so widely, and he's struggling a lot with the idea of, I say that I'm getting above my social situation and critiquing it, but 
wait a second, I've got to always be open to the fact that I just am talking from a particular position of privilege, and I have to step behind that, or step beyond that. And I see that particularly when I, you know, debate with or, or get uh, critiqued by people that believe in robot rights, because there's this discourse of robot rights that says things like, look, you know, you just are privileging your perspective as someone who's in, who's a carbon-based life form, you know. But in fact, like, if you really opened your mind, you'd see that, like, the robot that says, I am hurt when you kick it, you should respect it, and it should have rights just as you do. And I think that's where I draw a line, and I say, you know, I don't think that's true. I don't actually think, I think that, like, the type of sensors and actuators and information processing going on in that robot are fundamentally different than what's going on in me or you or any anybody in the audience right unless maybe there are listening machines listening to us and so i'm I, i'm sorry if i offend you listening machines but you know that's a, you know but this is this is a problem and i think it, it's particularly we need to draw a line because some of the discourse in, the, in this post-humanist direction tries to parasitize emancipatory struggles of women uh, minorities, other groups, and says, you know, just as you you once the polity didn't uh, treat African Americans in the U.S. Um, well, that it's treating our machines very poorly, and that you know we need to basically learn from that and to treat machines better and to treat machines as our human um, co-governors, as partners in 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 this world. And I think that's really ultimately insulting, you know, to uh, those that are have worked and are working in those emancipatory civil rights traditions, because it's drawing an equation that doesn't hold, right? It's drawing an equation between persons and machines uh, that just doesn't hold. There's similarly something going on with nature, where there's this emphasis to say, well, if you if you respect nature, if you respect, say, a river, or if you respect, say, an ecology, a habitat, that just as that's part of the natural world, that you should respect are robots because that's something that's highly valued in your technical world, in your technical environment. I don't agree with that either, because I think that there's something that is of higher value in nature than our machines. I think there's something of that that should that the world would be really irrevocably harmed if we were to sort of pave it over um, with human techne. Um, even though, uh, and, and I come at that, I should say, like part of my, the values that I, I would come at that with would be religious values. But part of it would come out of um, uh, values of the of, of the natural world as being part of nature and seeing that my, I am sort of my uh, whole being, it's the ground of my being, where it's not necessarily nearly as much the ground of being of technology. And so that would be some of the divides that I make. But I think that, you know, there are... Um, the, the, the post-structuralist attack on foundations is something I really worry about. And I mean, the last example I'll give, like with respect to robot rights and maybe an accelerationist view that we're all, uh, the accelerationism mingles with a singularity view to say, well, in the end, we're all just going to be revolving toward robot status. You know, it's just, gonna, it's going to be like Westworld, you know, and, and eventually the, the Dorothy's of, of Westworld, you know, or, or Dolores's of, of Westworld are going to be, you know, much more adept at, at surviving in this universe than we are. I really, I, I, I can't see that. I don't think that's right. And I think in the end, that push is much more, to me, symptomatic of, uh, it, it, or it is much more aligned with and congruent with Citizens United. Like, when I see people pushing for robots' rights, um, I also see them pushing for, or I see that something very similar to corporations getting rights, right? And the robot right now is almost always sort of the, the part of, a cor or created by a corporation. And it's about sort of creating a force multiplier for 
the technical creations to claim as many resources and rights as human beings have, but who owns those technical resources? So perhaps I would I should close out by saying, you know, if I were to just get rid of all metaphysical foundations, if I were to get rid of all sort of the, the humanism, and I, I've been called an old-fashioned humanist by some, and I, I'll, I'll wear that badge proudly, actually, but I could get rid of all that. I could get rid of the metaphysics. I could get rid of the humanism. I could get rid of the foundations. I could simply say, if we gave robots rights, equivalent to human rights, if, for example, bots on Twitter had a right to speak, you know, or other things like that, and the government couldn't regulate bots there or anywhere else, um, who would own most of them? Who would be creating most of them? I don't think it would be me, you know, and I don't think it would be many people that are underprivileged. I think it would be just like Bitcoin, where most of the Bitcoins are owned by a small group of people. I think most of those robots and AI would be owned by a very small group of people. They would be putting them out there and that I think is it's it's the power differential that comes out of that is just immense and and really is something that I wouldn't want to see as as part of a a, a future. So, yeah. I really like where you went with this, Frank, um, because I think it brings up a lot of questions related to you know you brought up critical theory and what you discussed is sort of like the dead end of yeah. critical theory and as as that dead end sort of we could say dialectizes through into posthumanism and then accelerationism. Um, I think you're right to like pair back to this question of and ultimately center law and creation and like and, and who's creating, who owns, and, and these sort of questions of agency in the creation. It's sort of that's the political economic point, isn't it? Right? Like who is actually putting in the labor to create these structures and, and keep maintaining these structures. Which is to say, ultimately, I think, um, and just a point that I wanted to make and also point to some, uh, like, the what we're calling the Superstructure Project, which is a spinoff of this podcast, Money on the Left, which is to say that um, the, the, there's an identity or non-identity that is assumed at the baseline from within the, the metaphysical foundations that you're critiquing, uh, I, I would suggest, and what we would want to say is, and along with you, and perhaps I'm inviting you to, to come along with us here, is to join in in foregrounding these political and legal questions first and foremost. Because yeah. that's perhaps where the agency in this sort of renewal, to harken back to what sort of the epigraph from your book lies, like as we move forward into the future. And I, yeah, I, would want, I wonder what you sort of think of that. Yeah, I really like that idea. Yeah, agency for renewal, agency for renewal, and, and sort of thinking about structure and agency and saying that we can create a structure where far more people have agency, right? And I think that is, um, uh, and that that resolves the contradiction in a way. Right. And yeah, yeah. And, and I, I really appreciate that way of framing and clarifying um, the direction there because, yeah, I, I just think it's it's too easy to say um, well, we're fragile, we're mortal, we, you know, the, we're, the, we're just these, uh, <laughs> you know, that that's, that, that because of that, you know, we've got to look beyond the human form and in, in human life and just create something better and, you know, have people at the very top of the economy demanding that sort of thing. Um, and I think ultimately if, if the economy were more, um, democratic, that there would be a far richer and more diverse visions ver out there for what society should look like 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now. I'm particularly reminded, I mean, there's this, this wonderful um, uh, clip, like a video clip of, I think, AOC describing what the Green New Deal would look like. 
you know, and she was sort of like, I'm taking the train from this city to another city. And I have, I'm walking through these beautiful public gardens because we've had a job guarantee and I'm doing these other things. And like, that to me is just such a more grounded and um, positive vision than the stuff that's coming out of our professional futurists, which just to me, it just strikes me as so often being uh, um, rooted in a really uh, disconnected idea of um, a, a far-flung speculative future. Um, and I think, yeah, to have a structure where more people have agency, I think then creates um, the conditions for really advancing human well-being as opposed to expecting some deus ex machina from technology to just deliver us. You know, And you see that with COVID too, right? I mean, I just saw an ad for pharma, um, the Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers Association on the Washington Post, huge ad front page that said, um, science will get us back to normal. And it had like a vaccine, like a picture of a vaccine. And I thought, you know, Taiwan is back to normal. And it wasn't science that did it. It was having a government that actually is connected to its people, that is competent, that can massively mobilize public funds for mask uh, creation and deployment. I think it's the second largest mask manufacturer in the world now. Um, and, the, you know, it just, it, it, it just has, and it can invest in public health and basic human needs uh, rapidly and nimbly and effectively. And, you know, that to me, just put it in a nutshell, you know, the, the pharma vision, which we may be waiting for for years, right? Who knows when a COVID vaccine will come? If it comes, it may be 30 to 40% effective versus like the strong, creative, nimble state, entrepreneurial state that Matsukato describes that, you know, was able to put into place uh, a COVID response. And that's not just Taiwan. I mean, South Korea, Vietnam, China, uh, New Zealand, Australia, all of them doing very well, you know? And so I think that's a it's, it's, it's great to uh, thank you for that clarification because I think that really helps uh, uh, focus us on, on where uh, political, social, critical thought should be going. Yeah. It also very nicely uh, brings us to the portion of your chapter on political economy where you talk about modern monetary theory and what MMT means for the future, political future of robotics. Could you summarize that argument for us? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think that the, the main idea there is. I'm wrestling with a lot of the book boils down to an argument for more investment in AI, robotics, and especially labor in the human services fields like healthcare, education, journalism, uh, design, the arts, um, many other fields that I could give, um, and for less investment in these zero-sum arms race fields, which I would include a lot of guard labor, the military policing, um, what uh, I think it was Arjaitov and Bowles have that article guard labor that gives all of those, frankly, a lot of the work that's done in law, you know, I mean, not in high levels of like corporate law right now, but you know, could certainly be repurposed to much better ends. Um, and uh, finance, a lot of private finance as well. And so when you make an argument like that, you just run into the buzzsaw of economists saying, well, actually, uh, health and education are the worst sectors. They are the stagnant sectors. In productive sectors, we see more and more output for less and less money. And I say that's really not true. Um, and even the, one of the founders of this cost disease theory, Baumol, in his 2012 work on the cost disease said, look, a lot of the reasons why these productive sectors are so productive is because they create massive externalities in the way of pollution and other, th you know, other matters like that. And so therefore, you know, don't try to model 
Uh, and then Keynes, I bring in Keynes as well, because if we were to just try to cut costs in these very large sectors of society, that could be a downward spiral, right? I mean, it's the classic paradox of thrift. So I think to get out of the paradox of thrift, which I foresee, and which is a clear and present danger now that we're seeing the election results this year, you know, even though you know, we, we've avoided authoritarianism, we have quite a setup for uh, austeritarianism. Um, and so out of this, uh, and so to avoid that, what I try to say is that, you know, we, we should be taxing, but that tax should be really primarily focused on um, solving problems of inequality. The real uh, idea here is to have sovereignty, sovereign currency issuers um, printing more of the money in order to make sure that we are uh, properly focused on the quality of health care. Right? We had an Affordable Care Act in 2010. Let's have a quality health care act. Let's have a quality care act in 2022 that's going to invest in high quality, that's going to make create more options for people that are now doing unpaid caregiving, either pay them for the caregiving or provide them the option of having professional caregivers come in. I mean, there are so long-term care. Let's provide long-term care insurance. There are endless examples of undone work in health care. And here I can again speak from personal experience as someone who is a caregiver for two uh, parents that needed a lot of help toward the end of their lives. Um, that was a ton of work that I did, you know, that was never compensated. And, you know, I, and, and we shouldn't buy into this idea, well, it's, it's work that, you know, is, was noble work and, you know, et cetera. Well, it was work, you know, it was, I mean, I, I like being in their presence, but it was work. And, and I would have liked to have had the option, at least for some things to have had a professional to have done it and have the state pay for that, you know, and get past this idea of, oh, if there's a deficit of a certain level, we're all doomed or something along those lines. And so I, I think that that, you know, the, the modern monetary theory shift, from thinking about there being, instead of a debt constraint, an inflation constraint, was just enormously empowering for me. Because then all of a sudden, you didn't have to just continually be worried about, you know, how am I going to take money from one part and give it to the other part? And, you know, what are, what are our priorities, etc. We can really prioritize a lot as long as we develop uh, modes of understanding where inflation is happening and where it's bad. Right. And, and I think that's and, and maybe some areas inflation would be good. You know, maybe some areas there we, we, we don't care if the price of Fabergé eggs goes up, you know, or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, you know, and, and we don't care about certain other things. And maybe some things should cost more because they are affirmative bads, you know. And so that's another way in which inflation. But there are other areas of inflation where we should be deeply concerned. And so that's where I think that, you know, the, the MMT shift from thinking about a debt constraint to an inflation constraint just to me is entirely the way the dialogue has to go. And it's particularly valuable in the context of our automation discussion because there are so many people out there that want to push uh, deflationary cryptocurrencies, which to me are just, you know, the worst kind of um, speculative instrument, you know, and, and to think that that is being put forward as the future of money when there is such a, a, a much more public-spirited, open-ended, productive alternative that to me is, adds the urgency to it. Like I had to put in a big knock on Bitcoin in my last chapter because, you know, in part to say like uh, this uh, MMT is just a much better way of thinking about what the future of money and uh, value creation and store and, and measure is, is going to be. And also to that, but I think I was oh, just going to say also just to point out, like even the way algorithmic thinking influences the way we even define inflation. Right. I think you were, I, but I just wanted to make yeah. that point like explicitly. Yeah, that, and I think I, I have a quote in one of my articles. Maybe it was in the in the review of the books by Columbia and Pistor and Brunton uh, in public books, where I think Milton Friedman said at one point, "Run the Federal Reserve with a computer." 
we just want a computer to like with a money supply, just, just dribble out the money supply by a, an algorithm. Uh, the Taylor rule suggests that I mm-hmm. think, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's just all these ways in which that algorithmic thinking is quite destructive, you know, and I just heard a great podcast with Dan Denver on the dig about with, uh, what was the, well, Wendy Brown sort of talking mm-hmm. about sort of the problem of, um, algorithmic, uh, uh, monetary policy in the EU. Right. And Wendy Brown was saying, like, this is if you govern your monetary policy with an algorithm, you know, or within very narrow bounds, you'll never be able to um, take on the challenges of our age. Right. The challenges of our age are so profound in terms of the client of climate change, um, uh, of, of COVID, the COVID pandemic and, and other areas that like you'll, you'll never dig out from those holes. And when I see the output gaps that are now being projected first from the global financial crisis and now from uh, COVID, it's terrible. I mean, these are huge amounts of money that every and huge amounts of productive capacity and production that we're all losing out on every day of our lives if we don't find ways to marshal resources and to pay for them with sovereign currency. I think um, not only as a um, positive reframing and answer to the kind of deadlocks in the the debates and discourses that you're working through i think it also um the pairing of mmt with your project the inclusion of mmt with your project for me it also opens up a kind of symptomology a kind of a way of reading reading certain certain discourses of automation of robotics symptomatically right so I'll, i'll spell that out um you know Algorithmic trading or zero sums, zero sum arm races uh, in military technology, or you know the algorithmic trading itself. These are all digging into and naturalizing a world of austerity. Saying you know the only way I can get mine is by is by leveraging the particular conditions right now in a narrow private way, mm-hmm. it, whereby yeah. I deepen those conditions, right? Yeah. So it's not just that those are bad and antisocial and anti-democratic. It's that I think from an NFT point of view, when you can see that actually these are all governance decisions in the first place and that we have a nominally infinite capacity to spend as needed given our current constraints, you can then turn that to all these problematic impulses, these accelerationist impulses and say, they're, they're a kind of sick result of our system itself and, and is reifying that system along the way. I don't know if that's making some sense. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I mean, I mean, to me, it's like to think about, to think about having a finance system you know, where simultaneously, as I was reading about the this sort of Allegheny uh, cable between New York and Chicago, you know, that costs three hundred million dollars, so that people can micro arbitrage a little bit better. Simultaneously, uh, Chris Christie in New Jersey was destroying the Arc Tunnel, that would be you know this incredibly needed capacity between New York and New Jersey, and between basically the whole Amtrak line, all New Jersey Transit, etc. Right. So somehow, like, and I, I, having, you know, spent a lot of time in New Jersey Transit when I used to teach at Seton Hall, you know, it was getting worse and worse and worse in terms of, you know, morning rush hours where people were just packing on, you know, unsafe conditions on the train, slow conditions. I remember, I remember one time the, um, 
things had malfunctioned. And so basically there was a crush of passengers at the front of the, uh, that were, we were coming up the escalator from New Jersey transit. There was a crush of passengers because there were so many delays in the trains. People couldn't move. The escalator was still moving. I had to like body surf over people to like roll over people that were like stuck. I mean, it's just, it's absurd, right? It's just absurd when you think about the way in which, you know, this is like a, um, happening in, the U.S. in terms of this sort of ridiculous situation of like um, uh, undercapacity with respect to our uh, basic infrastructure, while you have a, um, a financial sector that just that where, where money is no object, right? Because of the privilege of you know what Omarova and Hockett I think have called like the private franchise of money, um, you know, and that, that sort of thing. And I think it just it, it's something we really have to focus on. Yeah, and I think that the accelerationist idea, yeah, it it it. it feeds into it because the idea is in a world of just massively limited resources and opportunities and uh, things, I have to be as agile as a machine. I have to just be as, you know, make all the right moves and make everything perfectly algorithmically calculated. And only then I can survive because there's so much competition for this limited set of resources. When in fact, there's a lot of abundance we could create. Abundance within bounds, of course, within bounds of nature, you know, but I, I, I have a lot of hope that, you know, I'm not a cornucopianist, but I do think that there's going to be ways in which, if we're investing in the right technology, a lot of the trade-offs that we see are not going to be as severe, you know, in, in many in many levels. So, yeah. That seems like a good place to end. Uh, uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug before you leave us? Yes. Um, I am part of a group called the Association to Promote Political Economy and Law. And we've had a lot of great conversations about the future of uh, both monetary policy and sort of financial regulation there. So if anyone wants to go to politicaleconomylaw.org, uh, that's a place where you can see um, some of our past events, future events. We're doing a lot of stuff on Zoom now because you know because of COVID, but we hope to eventually have in-person events uh, in the future. And I just hope that this is a it's an intellectual community of lawyers, economists, uh, those in social sciences, those in humanities, historians, many others um, who've done a lot to rethink the nature of commercial life and economic life and how the law can better, uh, can be more conducive to more uh, human flourishing uh, generally. Uh, and I think our methodological diversity, we really welcome a lot of folks in it. And um, I just hope people will check it out. So politicaleconomylaw.org, uh, that's appeal. Thanks. Thanks.